you know, and my partner was very good. He was much older than I was. I, like I said, I worked for him. He would have been my mentor. I worked for him all through middle school, high school, understood money like nobody else I know. When I got married or was going to get married, he, you know, said, it's basically time for me to bow out. Like I've got you where you need to be. And so we bought him out. My sister and I did. And then, uh, then it's been great. Like it was all, you know, plus I was 21 years old. So yeah, sure. I mean, to have someone help you understand that just because you had a $3,000 sale today doesn't mean that that's your $3,000 to go put down on a car so that you get the car you want. Like, right. Oh, right. Absolutely. Yeah. It kind of develops some uh, bumper lanes for you to, to, to run some business. Speed bumps. <laughs> this episode of Establishing Your Empire is a unique and indeed extraordinary one for me. My guest is someone who's had a profound impact on my life, my career, and my understanding of what it takes to build a successful business from the ground up. He's not just a mentor, but a lifelong friend who stood by my side, shared wisdom, and taught me that creating a business is not just a dream, but a possibility within everyone's reach. His name is Eric Wagner. Eric isn't your average businessman. He's a true empire builder. Over three decades ago, he founded Showcase Diamond Jewelers in a small town of just over 20,000 people in the middle of Kansas. Today, despite its modest location, his store generates over seven figures in revenue, proving that success isn't just about where you are, but what you do and how well you do it. Eric is a master of his craft, and today he's brought along some high-end pieces from his collection, stunning pieces of jewelry, interesting coins, precious diamonds, and luxury watches to make this episode a visual treat for us. For the first company I ever created, Eric was right there, teaching me, guiding me, showing me the ropes. And today it is my honor to welcome him to the Establishing Your Empire show. So sit back, tune in, and get ready for an aspiring journey into the mind and heart of a true empire builder. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my mentor, my friend, and a jewel in the crown of entrepreneurship, Eric Wagner. You're listening to the Establishing Your Empire show, a podcast that inspires entrepreneurs, creatives, and future business owners to pursue their passions, grow their organizations, and build their empire. My name is Darren Herman, and creatively, I'm best known for my photography, but business-wise, my claim to fame is growing a company from 15K per month in online sales to breaking the $1 million a month barrier. And I'm sitting down with interesting people to talk about their process, the lessons they've learned, and how they have established their empires. All right, I got Eric Wagner here on the Establishing Your Empire podcast, flying all the way in from Hayes, Kansas. Uh, this will be a fun podcast because Eric basically, everything I am today, I owe to this guy, and then some, the, the good and the bad. But <laughs> maybe there's more bad. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So this will be fun because Eric brought a bunch of jewelry here. We're going to talk a lot of things. But first, can you just give a good overview of what you do for a living and have done for a while? Um, so my main source of a living is fun, sparkly, amazing things. And and recently we've even moved on into the coin and gold and silver business. But so basically we sell custom engagement rings and I've done this for 36 years. I know I don't look that old that I could have done it 36 years, but. 
So diamonds, diamonds and sparkling things, coins, gold, jewelry. Um, what I always love to do with these podcasts is we go back to like how you actually get started because most people, they don't grow up and like, hey, I want to be a jeweler. So like, how did that happen? So I left Hayes, Kansas and went to K-State and I lived in Junction City, Kansas. And I, uh, I've always kind of been a tightwad and I had some extra money left over from a grants. And so I went to a jewelry store in Junction City and I went in to buy a hundred ounce bar of silver with my extra money. Like invest for investment. Like investment to, so that I, because I'm a, if it's, I knew if it was in a hundred ounce bar of silver, it wouldn't be in $20 bills and I couldn't spend it. Oh yeah. yeah. So I went to do that. And then I, the guy didn't have one in stock. So I paid and ordered it. Then I had to pick it back up. And then when I came and picked it up, he said, well, anybody your age that's doing what you're doing for what you're doing, would you like to have a job? And I was like, well, I really wasn't planning on getting a job, at least my first semester of college coming from a small town. I wasn't sure what to expect, but I was already kind of bored. So I said, sure. And I worked there my whole four years of college and then uh, went out on my own with a guy that I worked for all through middle school and high school. And he helped me get the store started in Hayes. So let's talk about first a little bit about like working through college you know, because so I worked through college, worked with you through college, right. a lot of it. But like a lot of your friends aren't doing it. Uh, I think there's so many things to be said about people who actually work because you learn so many things. So like what, what what's some like, I don't know, like something that you learned during those college years that you learned through working versus the work through actual college. Right. Well, the biggest thing that I notice now, I mean, and maybe it's the advent of the cell phone and texting, but. I mean, I was a little bit of an introvert, I would say. So for me to take a retail job selling to people was super difficult for me. And probably I had a large learning curve myself, but probably the number one thing working through and not just getting to converse with your friends is having to tell someone who's 40 years older than you about a product or an item. And and then it's having the confidence to look them in the eye and maybe not know what you're talking completely about but at least with the confidence that they think you know what you're talking about do you remember your first big sale i do um i think every salesman should but i remember mine yeah um, so i'll tell you mine there was a sand company guy from junction city and he came in and everybody else was busy and i had only probably worked there three months and then he came in and i i mean i just had to help him there was no one else so i showed him a few things and then i went in the back and asked my boss, like told him who it was and could, what could we do. And so he gave me a price and I went back out and, um, the guy bought it and gave me like, I think it was $850, but I mean, that was a lot of money to me, like kind of being poor and where I was from that was 850 bucks was like, Holy. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So my, my first one was, uh, you, you might even remember this too. You were gone and, uh, somebody came in and I sold them, uh, um, a Tanzanite ring, like a two carat Tanzanite or something, like four thousand dollars, I think, or something, which is very difficult to get somebody to pay that amount of money for a colored stone, correct? Versus just diamonds. And I remember you're about to go to Alaska for your trip, and I could just feel it in your bones that you're like, "Oh, I can go on this trip now." Like you were okay to like let me run the store for when you're gone because I sold this big Tanzanite ring, and that was always fun. Something I always remember. Well, and it's like it's like my two guys that I have now, I mean, both have been two years plus, but now I know 
I mean, it's there's a lot of work involved and a lot of learning. So back to a couple college kids doing it, they've obviously learned a lot. But now you're, you know, you're you're flipping again, and I can go to here and do this and yeah. have some fun. And I know things are getting sold while I'm gone. Like, so as an owner, that's amazing to be able to talk about staff that have, has taken it in hand, I guess, and learned enough. The house doesn't burn down while you're gone. Correct. So let's talk about how you actually opened uh, that store. And you were saying that basically somebody you knew helped, but like people don't just put money into a 25-year-old to open a big old store with a quarter million dollars worth of inventory. So how did that actually happen? Well, first of all, I was 21 because I just graduated from K-State. But so he gave enough money. My aunt and uncle gave enough money. And then we qualified for some SBA loans uh, through a little locally owned bank. Um, And a wonderful lady. I think she believed in me very much, but not quite enough just to give me all the money without some SBA backing. But um, so we, we did that. And then yes, that this might be where we are now for inventory say, but then I think I probably only had six showcases and my partner would joke that we needed to go to the river and get some river rock because it was pretty sparse i mean we probably only had maybe 40 or fifty thousand dollars worth of stuff like which sounds like a ton of money still to most people but what's that mean like so a showcase is basically a case that showcases yeah, it's like the either jewelry. four foot or six foot typically and you know but i mean now i have that much in half of one showcase right. like so I mean, selection was minimal. Like, so it just so, only had like four rings or 10 rings per, per yes, case. Yes, like if you came to look at wedding sets, I mean, maybe we had 12 wedding sets. And, yeah. you know, then yellow was popular. So we had 10 yellow gold and two white gold ones. And they probably all had rounds <laughs> or princess cuts or marquees, you know, yeah. whatever was popular at the time. But, the, you know, the hard, the hard part was there wasn't any selection. So I had to be very good at using like company catalogs and books that we bought merchandise from to sell. And I, I would say I still have my original Stoller book that then it says on the front, do not throw away Eric's Bible, basically <laughs> is what it says. So, I mean, I still know where everything is in that book. That's so funny. <laughs> so, uh, and where'd you open this first store? So our first store was in Hayes. And then we had a little store in Russell for a while. And then we opened our store in Salina, which my sister runs. And, uh, we kind of uh, just are getting older. So a couple years ago, we split up. So I kind of just have that one left. And her and I also did uh, one in Manhattan together, Kansas, thinking, oh, we would just be kill it, you know, and we had to have a manager and find somebody in it. And it was, um, it, you know, it was one of those failures. Like yeah. it just failed. Yeah. <laughs> why, why did it fail? Like what, what happened? What was wrong? Well, I think that, you know, first of all, the two stores we did ourselves were wonderful. Well, I part of it was probably say manager choices, help choices, and then someone, you know, decides they don't want to do what you want to do. Then it becomes a bit of a rift, and then it's two hours away. So, you know, I thought, oh, I'd go once every other week, and then I'm going twice a week, and then, you know, the original store starts to fail because you're gone more. And so, I'm not so sure if we wouldn't have gone longer, we would have figured it out. But with the money it was costing and what we were losing, it just really, and the time, it was a different time in our lives. Like we had young kids too. So then it was like, you know, before young kids, it wouldn't have mattered. I could have gone three days a week and put in the extra time, but then you're missing kids stuff and those things. And I think for both of us at the time we were in our lives, 
it was just better to cut losses. So there's always something to be said about like not a co-founder, not a family member, not somebody fully running the show. So I think a lot of people run into this with startups too because they could do it well at a certain point, but as soon as they want to scale up and have you know a head of sales, ha- having other people run the show, that it's I think it's a whole different process for that to work. It's just hard. It's just very hard. And then you, I mean, you're obviously putting all your trust in, you know, a store manager and then to to hire help. And then, so it just, and then, you know, if you haven't done it and then you do it, uh, it can make you uncomfortable too. Like all of a sudden you can lose trust a lot quicker than you can gain it on, on your thought processes. So then a couple mistakes or you tell them a few things when you're there, they should do and they don't do them. And then, and then it, Mentally, for the owner, it starts to fall apart. Yeah, let's talk about money because I think money is interesting of how to actually. So you got this SBA loan and a loan, but like, okay, but you obviously have already said that that wasn't really enough inventory. It was everything was tough, and I'm sure you were missing sales left and right that you wish you would have got. Like, how how do you how did you, how have you, how have you funded the company? How does the company get grow and scale and move up the, the chain? So. Part of it was I was a huge reinvestor. I wasn't married when I started it. I didn't get married till I was 28 or 29. So for seven years, I didn't have much overhead. So, so how much did you pay yourself those first I The first three years, I paid myself $800 a month. <laughs> and I rolled it all back in. There was no, I mean, I just did. And, and then when we opened the store in Salina and I hired my sister, kind of, and then we became partners after, but... Like she wouldn't come to work for less than 18,500 a year. Which is still tiny, but still. (laughs) So I said, well, I can't, I'm not going to give her that and me not get that. So then I gave myself a raise to 18,500 a year. And, and when we kind of opened that sign of store, it maybe gave a scale. So then we like would qualify for like a line of credit. And then, so, you know, we had a $50,000 line of credit and then whatever. And I think at one time, like funding three stores full of inventory, I mean, we probably had a $350,000 line of credit that we were, you know, dipping into all the time, financing and dipping into all the time. And then typically those are due once a year. So, so I'm an inventory hog or whatever you'd want to say. Like I like inventory. Well, that might be it. But anyway, it just, so I'm still out of control, even though I don't owe any money anymore, (laughs) but we just kept growing inventory. So then those lines of credits would be due at the end of the year. Well, then we, you know, Christmas is 35% of our year. So we'd have Christmas and then we, all of our money would go to pay off the inventory and there was no money to give ourselves. So, I mean, we funded the growth of the inventory through our lack of wages and through a line of credit eventually. And how many years do you think it took to before you paid off the loans completely? So I, we completely paid them off when I, uh, when my sister and I split two years ago. So it took 30 years. <laughs> 30 years, which I think is very important for somebody like, this is a wonderful business and, and look, you're a jewelry roll around with a big old ring and so does your wife. And every, every, everybody probably thinks, oh, this is like, you know, the easiest thing, you know, oh, you know, like good for him, 30 years of loans. And I can guarantee you, if you have a line of credit like that, that, that weighs in the mental capacity all the time. <laughs> um. I, that doesn't, that's never bothered me. Uh, well, I should say it's never bothered me when I was younger. Now that I'm older, it's a different story. Like you, uh, 
you know, I had a philosophy when I was young was I figured at one point if I owed a million dollars and I paid that million back, I'd be worth a million dollars. And if it was in product or bullion or whatever it would be in, I couldn't spend those dollars because they weren't dollars just to go buy a car with, or they were hard assets that weren't spendable. So, so I, so that was kind of my philosophy was if it wasn't available to spend, nobody could take it as a raise or a wage or anything like that. So for me, when I was younger, it's different. And like when we did Salina and say we lost $150,000 on that project or something, um, you know, I was younger and I had more time to make that money back. Well, now that I am where I am, and I'm not old yet, but where I am where I am, money I would lose now might cut off a year of retirement. I mean, if I lost my half was say 75,000, that might cut a year or two years off my retirement. So I'd have to retire two years later or you still take the steps, but you might look before you take the steps. A little bit, <laughs> a little bit, a little bit harder look at the. So for a lot of people, because I most of my listeners are going to be the want to be entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs or just, you know, startup people. Let's do a fun story. Like what's the biggest piece, biggest diamond that you ever sold? Uh, like probably eight or 10 years ago. And you got to remember, we're not, you know, we're not Austin. We're a small town of like 21,000 people. So, you know, I think my biggest piece I ever sold was like 110,000, which is most for most people in general, even living in Austin, that's, that's something huge. that's massive. That's huge. It's uh, huge. So the biggest I sold when I worked for you was a six and a half carat solid stone. And I want to, the reason why I want to say this is, is it's a little shocking to a lot of people who aren't in jewelry. And by the way, Hayes has what, 30,000 people? Uh, 21. 21,000. So in 21,000 people, I sold a six and a half carat round stone. And you've sit there and just said that you sold a $100,000 plus item. I think that's pretty shocking and pretty impressive and also very interesting. Um, and most of my vendors will tell you that they're amazed that we sell that stuff there. But um, we're probably the number one producing oil county in Kansas. Uh, we're definitely one of the, I mean, we're definitely all ag. Um, we have a college, we have a hospital. So, you know, we have lots of corn production north of us. Like, so, so it's just, we're kind of in a little spot where, um, and it's old money, like lots of old money. People like oil wells have gotten passed down from generation to generation farmland has. And so there's just, there's disposable income there that most people probably don't understand. Yeah. And then, so one thing that's interesting that you do that others don't is you buy off the street. Like, uh, so, and one thing that people don't understand is, so this, you know, when you go to kind of a mom and pop jewelry store, it's way different with an owner versus a very large chain store. That chain store, that manager might have some knowledge, but not nothing, not near the same. They, they might tell you something's worth with appraisal, but they can't write a check for it. You know, like, and that's really what something's worth to me is if somebody's going to write a check right then and there or give you cash, $100 bills. Right. So like, how, why did you start buying? Is that something that maybe the first person taught you or how did you get into that and, or anywhere you want to take it? So my first boss at the jewelry store, yes, we bought as well. And uh, we bought lots and that's kind of where I learned how obviously to do it and the importance of doing it. And, and out where we live, I mean, there's, you've got to think that, um, veterans come back from world war one world war two they bring coins back with them they bring watches back with them they bring pocket watches back with them they bring war memorabilia back with them and and as as time's going on young people are collecting less and less so like i might buy a large coin collection from a guy and he's 85 and the people who buy it from me are 65 plus 
we don't have a lot of 30 or 35 year old guys coming in collecting coins. And I think young people are currently more about an experience and not about, say, a physical item. So there's not as many collectors of certain things or what they're collecting is changing because they don't like they don't. It doesn't click to them. Yeah. Well, and also like. I think that storage of wealth and the distrust for banks and stuff back in the day is much stronger than it is now. So like people put money underneath the mattress, they put it into gold, they put it into silver, they put it into even jewelry for that matter. Correct. Which I feels like that's starting to happen a little bit again, a little bit. Well, not even just a little bit, like in the last two years with a people worried about inflation um, and those types of things like so. Of course, when, um, you know, the dollar gets strong, commodities tend to drop a little bit. But when the dollar weakens, these commodities gain strength, like oil prices go up, farm prices go up, gold and silver prices go up. So so then people are worried about inflation. They're worried about the collapse of the economy or the collapse of a currency. And then they go to a hard asset. Well, a hard asset would be gold and silver bullion. That is, I mean, if I put six gold one ounce coins in my pocket, and I leave here and I go to Mexico with it, which still worth whatever six ounces of gold worth is in Mexico in pesos as it was here in dollars. Right, like, right. Like it's so... Very international. It's, yeah. it's super international. And uh, I'm going to say something that you've kind of alluded to earlier, but I know nothing about. You asked the question, well, how come they don't just do Bitcoin? Mm-hmm. I don't know the answer to that. I personally wouldn't be comfortable doing Bitcoin with the current collapse in a banking thing that ran Bitcoin and, mm. and, yeah. and people like, I mean, I'm like, people like to hold things yeah, like yeah. this is real. Yeah. I mean, could you, could you give me a few Bitcoin? Yeah, yeah, right, right. Exactly. Yeah. I could give you like, something fake. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about some of these things. Wow. This is actually really cool. This has got like a, uh, Mexico. I don't know if we can see that. It's probably really, cause it's super bright. These are like, are these brand new? Uh, these are brand new. So these are uncirculated. They typically come in tubes of 25. So, so in America, um, our silver that we print here is called the American Eagle. Um, so it's a it's a one ounce coin of silver, but it says one dollar on it. So in America, this is like our silver currency, mm-hmm. and this is Mexico's silver currency. So show me what you have in your hand there. Okay, so then like so this is the Chinese panda. So most countries have their like some form of currency that's actually silver. So. So right now in what we do, the American Eagle, so like a one, a normal one ounce round of silver would bring say spot plus $4 right now because of the premium. So spots like the worldwide thing. So like silver today, say $21. So right now, because there's a lack of silver and everybody's wanting it, the premium is $4. So you're going to pay spot plus $4. So $25 for that one ounce. Coin. It's like twenty percent extra. Yes, it's that because it's strong. that strong and hard to find. And is that because it's a coin or because just in general? No, because it could be just a general one ounce thing of silver like this. It could be a generic buffalo silver that some weird foundry printed in New Jersey. Like it doesn't matter. It's yeah. just one ounce of pure silver. So, so the American Eagle, because um, because the world believes in the U.S. dollar as a currency. The American Eagle right now is spot plus ten or twelve, but is it? But it's still just silver. It's still just an ounce of silver, but that's just the way it is right now. 
So this panda is not worth spot plus 12. This Chinese panda is worth spot plus four. Weird. Now, just because the stamp on it. Now, now, is that the U.S. Treasury stamp or is it just a stamp? No, this is like these American eagles are from the U.S. government. Okay. So okay. like this panda is from the Chinese and these are from the Mexico. from Mexico. So they're all so they're all currencies. Interesting. So if you went to China, you could go any store and spend this for 10 won. Uh, Which would probably not make any sense because the the silver the silver's worth more. worth more than that. Yes, yeah, and you won, could go ten ones like uh, two dollars. So yeah, $2. and this is uh, I'm not sure what the Mexican one is, but this is a dollar in the U.S. Oh yeah, it makes no sense because it no it's sense. thirty bucks in your hand otherwise. Correct. So, um, but okay. So one of the reasons why we brought this is like you buy this stuff though, not just from like dealers. Like so, we we're talking about like these people that collected all these years. So. Is it happening where a lot of people are because the price has gone up, they're selling it or because they're aging out or both or like what, how is it, what, what's happening? Um, so some of both, a lot of it is the aging out. And then like, I mean, most, a lot of our things right now, like I should say, like our big purchases from individuals are grandma and grandpa passed away. We've inherited these things. They've been in a safe in our basement for four or five years now. We don't even know what they're worth. What do we do? So you can make an appointment with me. And my staff's very knowledgeable. Like, you'd be really surprised what my young guys know. I think because they're fascinated by it. Once they get started, they're like, oh. And now the my staff collects this stuff. So we get something cool in that they liked, and they want to buy it. And, you know, I there's I buy lots of times when there's a collection that I buy, I keep one or two pieces. And, I mean, I've always collected things. I've always been a collector. But probably 10 years ago, like, I collected big Coke signs and Coke machines and pedal cars, you know, and. Uh, my, I've, my wife finally just said, you cannot collect anything that will not fit in a safety deposit box. <laughs> and I said, well, how big can the safety deposit box be? <laughs> so I just, I'm a collector. Yeah. And so I, so I keep one or two of a collection or something if it's cool. But tell me like a story about like buying it. So like, you, you know, you, you say, Hey, somebody, some people bring this stuff to you. Do you have any fun stories or because I just, the people, this is going to be completely foreign to some people. So like, let's, you know, give me a couple of stories of people that have, that you've purchased, whether it's recent or old or whatever. Yeah. So like, so this watch, which I wear now, I just said, I <laughs> have trouble getting rid of things, but this is a 1980 Rolex professional. So we've all heard of a Rolex president, mm -hmm. but this is a professional. So it's in 14 carat, not 18 carat. Um, it just has the date, not the day up here. And so, you know, but this watch, you know, now 40 years old, runs perfect, not a thing wrong with it, original diamond dial. So these people are interesting just because they're, they're older. Um, they only have a couple kids who are not interested in any of it. And they've collected all of this stuff over the years. And so, I mean, they're wanting to turn it into money probably so that when something happens to them, it's like, okay, here's your $5,000, here's your 5,000, and here's your 5,000. And they don't have to worry about the kids not knowing what it is and not getting the money they should. Yeah. So, I mean, that's probably a large part of like what we're buying. You know, sometimes it's obviously the sad side, the divorce. I mean, 50% of marriages in a divorce. So I mean, something's got to happen with those. And a lot of people don't buy, so it's, like it's good that he actually give that 
that uh, it's available to people to to actually purchase. What about like any a uh, Bitcoin purchases? Like the like when you were kind of saying that, I would imagine some people roll in with like boxes full of coins. Yeah. So like my biggest coin purchase was a man that co- collected mostly gold coins. Like really had no silver, but it was mostly all gold coins. Like one ounce coins. One ounce, all sizes. Um, I mean this this Chinese panda uh, half ounce. This came from that collection. And I chose to keep this one for myself just because I liked the look of it. So, so that was, I, I think I gave him right at $260,000. Wow. And, uh, you know, and I sold all but two coins in Northwest Kansas. So, which how, is an amazing two. how long two. does that take you to sell it? It is took that, us about three weeks. That's insane. It, it is insane. Uh, now there's stuff we sell, of course, that we have to list on heritage auctions or, you know, some eBay, but you know, some higher end auction sites, we, there's some pieces that aren't just going to happen. But so, you know, I also would want to say that when people come in, we like to try to explain or, okay, well, this is worth this and this is what we're going to pay you and why, you know, and, you know, sometimes people are like, oh, I can't take that. And they go, you know, to Wichita or somewhere where they think they're going to get more and they come back. Like I, I try to pay up because I like the stuff too. And I'm a small town and I, I mean, we have that reputation to uphold of that we, and we get so many referrals, like, you know, you've worked for me before I get referrals from you. And so, but this, but the guy that sold all the gold collection, I mean, he had tubes of these of gold. Yeah. Right. 20 ounce, 20 in a, yeah, yeah, 20 of those in a thing. Like, and so, I mean, it, it was probably the biggest collection that I'd ever seen. And so that's amazing. So, uh, and then what about like, well, I think one thing we haven't really talked about too much is like, how did you start buying? Like, cause that it seems obvious, but like, okay, coins I get, but like, say somebody rolls in with, you know, a diamond, like, here we go. And just for people that are on audio, I don't know, this looks about, about like four carat. Hey, this is probably, a, this is like six and a half. Six and a half. Sorry. Right. Um, yeah. Cause I mean, I thought that you was, sold uh, one of those. <laughs> well, it's been a while. <laughs> it was 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Um, like somebody rolls in with this, like, okay, one, how do you tell it's real? How, how do you price it? How do you, how do you afford the right to check? You know, I think a lot of that of just like explaining that I think is interesting. So obviously the, I mean, the first thing we would try to assess is the cut, the color, the carrot and the clarity. And then most, a lot of the nicer, bigger stones now have already like GIA certs. And then it's just making sure the laser number on the side matches to the cert. And GIA is it's the, it's the Gemological Institute of America. So they're the world's renowned grader of diamonds and colored stones. So, so if they say it is, you, it already tells you kind it, of. Yeah, like if they say that's what it is, it's it's industry standard that that's mm-hmm. what it is. Like, yeah. um, you know, it's kind of like sending a coin to PCGS or NGC. So, yeah, right. Yeah. So or, or if you have a baseball card to Beckett. Correct. It's I, all whatever it is. Correct. I don't it's know what a it bit is, all relevant. Yes. Yeah. So so then, of course. That makes it easy if there's that with it. If mm. there's not that with it, then we usually would have to pull the stone. We'd have to weigh it. We'd have to color it, clarity it. And now with the advent of the lab-grown diamonds and everything mm. else, we have about probably $7,000 worth of equipment now that that has to be set on and put through and tested. And then, you know, and then if I'm still not comfortable at that point, I may have to look at you and say, we're going to have to send the stone to GIA and 
if it comes back from GIA as genuine, I will give you this. And if it doesn't, then it, we don't. But but I've done that. I've had to do it a couple times, like especially with the new lab-grown diamond stuff. Yeah, and I think I think that what you're saying too, which is like it's not just it's not easy to buy, and that's why a lot of people don't do it. Like it's it's you know there's so much things, and also you got to know like you know like here's a state piece that my my wife owns here of uh, turquoise. Here, but like how and that and we bought that from you but like how would you know what to pay for a big turquoise you know like that's that's really hard well so a little bit of the fun part becomes is with so we call most of this stuff like if it's in our case like the jewelry and it's in our case we call it the estate case because it's pre-owned so obviously in our industry styles change but just because styles change doesn't mean we don't have like a 20 year old girl that likes that style or that we don't have a 70 year old woman that likes that style and she can't find anywhere to buy it anymore because nobody makes it anymore. So part of it is, is that then nice pieces like this, I mean, we buff and polish and clean up and then we probably know a customer. And if it sets more than a year, we may have to melt it. Like, it, I mean, we probably take a loss on it and melt it and move on. Like melt the, the, the gold yeah, we'd pull the stone and melt the gold. So, um, so a lot of this, you know, so sometimes the value is, well, I'm going to give you a hundred extra for that than gold melt or whatever, because I know somebody who will enjoy it and will buy it. That might buy it. That might buy it. And if they don't, I may be melting it a year later and losing whatever I was losing. But I, after 30 some years in my town only being as big as it is and my surrounding area only being as big as it is, my list is huge of people and yeah. what I know. I, I I don't miss often. Right, and if you do, it, it's just a numbers game. Right, and, um, and I, I, you know, hopefully this doesn't sound like a commercial, but I think it's just very interesting and fun to see all this stuff. And I think a lot of people don't. This is a whole foreign world to them. But now we have like this is a so we're in the, the this office right now is uh, a good buddy of mine, Amy Dallas Seeley's office, and that's their logo for their company. So how does that happen? Like, does somebody carve a wax? Is that like 3D done or like, what, so how, they, how do they do that? So they sent me what they wanted done and we, um, so now, I mean, yes, I mean, think about 10 years ago, most of this was probably hand carved and done like by hand. Mm -hmm. So nothing was quite as perfect as it can be now. So like now the cool part is it's, and it's too expensive for us to have the equipment where we are, but now literally somebody CADs this. Mm -hmm. uh, we send out the CAD, the customer approves the CAD or says what changes they want. If they approve it, um, the 3D printer prints it perfectly and it's cast and done, you know? So, uh, but the equipment and the training and somebody to run all that equipment is, is more than it's worth to have it in our location. So sometimes when it's completely custom, we might make the ring and then say it was for this diamond, you know, and we made this ring for them. Um, we just keep the diamond at the store, scan it in and with all the measurements and they build the cat around this, the information like a partner, we sent them. A partner does, does the, the, the full customization, but they do it now with, right. With, and with then computers. they send us the ring finished and we set the stone. Yeah, so the customer wonderful. stone never had to go anywhere. Yeah. Like all, all very, Cool. Like this, this is another really cool estate ring. And that's yeah, my wife's piece. Um, yes. And so, I mean, funny she piece is that, yeah. this piece came with this coin. Oh, really? I didn't. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah. So, 
there was li very little jewelry in with the coin collection, but this was one of the pieces. So very unique. Uh, so for people listening, this one's got so a bunch of colored stones. So we can tell Christine likes bigger, chunkier yeah, rings. Yeah, big, big, fun <laughs> rings, right? Right. Yeah, so a super fun, um, a lot of colored stones. We've got Peridot and looks like, actually looks like a lot of different, um, it might be all, is it an amethyst? A bunch oh of yeah, there's amethyst, citrine, garnet, yeah. all kinds of stuff Yeah, just in there. And, you know, all just in that 18 karat gold. Um, and you know, too, like we shouldn't leave guys out. Like, yeah, sure. I mean, cause it uh, kind of went away for a while, you know, but now like watches are kind of popular for guys. Um, but there's a few things that are, um, so now like this, like super fiery, but like a lot of the basketball players and stuff are wearing these black diamond bracelets and necklaces. So basically those are look like a little round. They're like called little, like basically um, pebbles. They're that called are, briolettes. Cut, yeah, they're briolettes. So they're super multifaceted, super cut. This one's strung on wire. Cause and that's actually diamonds. They're black diamonds. So there's probably like, I can't remember. I want to say there's like 24 carats in this bracelet. Cool. Um, but anyway, there's guys are always doing things too. And so like for black diamond bracelets, we just probably two weeks ago bought this ring and I know it's going to be super hard to tell from video, but obviously I was wearing that here today. Like, so again, it's a piece I bought and I'm not sure I'm going to want to get rid of <laughs> the hoarding, but not, not the collecting, the, it's the, the hoarding. hoarding, but the, the stone, you know, is like, it's kind of got an orangish brown color to the diamond, which is cool. Like if we hold this one next to it, you can see how white this one is. And that one's kind of orangish brown. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Makes it a cool guy's ring. Um, and in this, if you look at the inclusion, which would be little things that are in the stones, there's a black V. And the inclusion creates a V in the middle of the stone. And so so for me, it was a victory ring. Ah, there we go. <laughs> Not sure I've had victory. any victories yet, but I like, well, maybe I'll keep it. Um, fun. Well, and that actually makes it worth less, but it's fun. It does make it worth less. But then less, you have a story, though. It's a story. And you have to day. It's unique. And you know, I, I do, you know, quality is one thing, but a story is really what we buy when we're buying jewelry and a lot of things. We're all buying stories. Like, so, uh, you know, talking about jewelry here, like the watch that I have, this, this will be my, no matter, I could have, you could give me, the most expensive watch ever made, and I'll still like this watch more because my wife bought it for me through you. Right. I think it's a 2003 Rolex here, but um, that you bought off the street. I don't actually maybe tell the story because I don't know. Well, we and uh, off the street's probably my term. The correct term we're probably supposed to be using is over the counter. Over the counter. OTC. I don't know quite, yeah, OTC. I don't know why. Um, so again, this watch was like um, pre owned, and you know, I would say on Rolexes, like I myself would probably never purchase a brand new Rolex. I would probably always do pre-owned because it's kind of like buying a new car and I'm kind of tight and I, I've never really, I think I've only ever bought one new car for in my life, but I don't like to take that hit coming off the curb. Well, pre-owned Rolexes, I mean, this watch is probably over $20,000 now and you can buy this 40 year old pre-owned pre one that runs perfect I mean, you can buy this watch for probably $6,500. Right. And, and it's and 14 karat it, gold. it works great. Yes, it works wonderful. You know, and this watch, I don't even remember how much this was, but, but, so, but also once they get to a certain point, it's probably like an old car that gets to have 200,000 miles on it. At some point, it's always worth a couple thousand dollars. It just is what it is, yeah. Th these are the same way. Once yeah. they get to a certain point, they're never going to be worth any less. Right. 
And that's the nicest thing about buying a pre-owned Rolex. Let's transition real quick a little bit. So what's five years from now from you? Like where, 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 where do you see yourself? So I think I would still like to be doing what I do, but I probably would like to be more on like maybe back out of, I mean, of course, help my customers have had forever, but hopefully the store transitions a little bit coming up where we have a little bit more sales staff other than myself. Not that I won't still be there, but that I can help more people with, you know, selling some of their items that they have, you know, like, I mean, for an example, for you, like you could look at this coin, the coin on my left and the coin on my right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I'll give them to you. To you, they're going to look exactly the same. Okay. And so when people come in, they don't know what they have because they've probably inherited it. So they went to the safety deposit box and this stuff was in there. So one of these coins is worth $40 and the other coin is 1100 Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And so... Yeah, no way. No. no, no it chance. just has to do with the they're, year, the mint they're mark. They're five years difference. The condition. Like it, so, so much stuff yeah, right. goes into making sure that we're valuing things out fairly. So... I mean, we're even for where we are, because I mean, I've done this 30 years. So I have you in Austin. I have this employee that now lives here and this one that now lives there. And then, you know, I have a friend who has a sister in California and then like, but it's all this referral stuff. So for me, my customer base base has grown so large that it's hard for me to sometimes even like just to keep up on a so it but sounds we'll like scaling, basis. scaling back maybe the the actual hours that you work, but scaling up your your reach of buying and, of, and getting more probably into the estate piece, which feels like something that actually happens to people through through like the years of their being in jewelry. They end up fa falling to more like a specific category as opposed to just the general jeweler. Right, and I I I probably would like to transition back a little bit just because I. I don't want to short anybody on the other side of this. Like I love the jewelry side. Like, sure. Like, and I mean, I would love like you, you've got to think about how exciting it is to build a bracelet, the caliber of this bracelet for someone who was just a, re, was a referral. Yeah. Like they never met me. They never and knew tell me. Tell us about the bracelet. For I mean, audio. it's just a basic four prong tennis bracelet, but the diamonds are all like white SI one. Like, so it's like we built a nicer tennis bracelet than you would normally see. Like if you were going to a chain store, you know, as opposed to a privately owned store, I mean, this bracelet is built with nicer diamonds. Mm -hmm. Now I'm not saying in the store, I won't have a bracelet that has lower quality diamonds than this. It'll just be a lower price price point. But on the jewelry side of things where we live, if you haven't been in the store before, you would just be amazed. I mean, we probably have 2,000 SKUs. Okay, that's more than most stores in Kansas City would have. We have typically up to three and four carat diamonds. We have um, not as much colored stone because where we are, people tend to be very basic. Um, so I just think it's important that people know what we have and then people say, oh, I can't, you know, we had some people come in last week and they're like, well, we're just here to get our fingers sized. And I'm like, and first of all, I know where they're going. They're going to the internet. Mm -hmm. And sure. I'm like, well, well, what ring are you? What ring do you have picked out? Like, show me which ring in the case you picked out. I'd like to see. Well, no, we can't get one here. 
And I'm like, well, how come you can't get one here? Like I'm sizing your fingers for you. Well, we just know we can't afford a ring here. And I'm like, well, you haven't even looked. You've never been in before. So we get to looking and I have a few rings in back that are awesome. And um, I sold them each a wedding band because they were getting married that weekend, like of a tungsten material or, you know, but we'd had the two rings for a while and they each bought a ring for $50. So, you know, of my 2200 SKUs, I got rid of two SKUs. They were so excited and happy. And I, I have them for a customer of, for life, no matter, like, I don't know how their life will turn out. Hopefully I get to know. Right. But <laughs> Yeah. Is, is part of you just like to win? Yeah. I don't want to lose. Like, I, like it, it, it's hard for me to know that I lost the sale to somewhere else yeah. or that I lost the purchase. Like that I didn't like, did I not get to buy that coin collection or that silver bullion or gold bullion yeah. or that ring? Did I not get to buy it because someone else offered more. And what about, so you mentioned the internet, how has that affected the retail, not just jewelry business, I guess. Well, yeah, jewelry business. How has internet, because internet's been around for a long time. It Blue, has. Blue well, Nile's been around for a long, long time. Yeah, so I would say when it like first started, like when everybody first really started buying on the internet, it was super annoying because I felt like every week somebody would be like, oh, I'll buy it on the internet, I'll buy it. And you know, you got kind of mad. And now, like, I think enough people have gotten, have been disappointed with their purchases jewelry wise on the internet, you know, like, oh, it came and it wasn't, well, how come my three carat total weight studs aren't as sparkly as yours? Or, you know, like they're in the store for another reason. And then, so we really see very little of it now. Like, so it's amazing to me that we see as little as we do, but part B also is in my industry, it, it way took away a lot of our profit margin. So if I want to sell and not worry about them shopping on the internet, I mean, I've got to price match or be very close. I'm, I'm not saying I can't be two or 300 more dollars because they want to buy it local and they're going to come in and have it appraised and cleaned and prongs checked and things like that. And most people understand that's worth something. Yeah, absolutely. So, so not as bad. And it's, it's also a see it, touch it, feel it thing a little bit. And it, it, well, it is. It's amazing. Like, I mean, I, I really don't understand. Like, you wouldn't go buy like a Porsche Boxer without probably setting in it, driving it around. Like, you, I, most people, some might, but some like, might, but, but like, I, it's not me. Right. Sure. And then let's talk about. So, one of the things that happened a long time ago when I worked for you back in early 2000 is we hired a advertising agency that's actually here in Buda, Texas called the Wizard of Ads. Correct. Roy Williams, a famous advertiser. Talk to me about like what you did before that, how that, why you hired them and what they've done, you know, what that did for you. And what I want this to be a little bit, more, doesn't have to be just jewelry focused, but like, hey, this is a business and this is how we did our advertising and what it did for us. So um, I believe my sister, and I give her total credit for this. Okay. <laughs> because Tanya. Oh yeah. Because uh, so I, she probably read it in a, like a JCK magazine or something. And uh, she came to me and said, well, I think we should go see this guy. Like it looks interesting. And basically up until that point, we probably did some newspaper ads here and there. We did some radio, like every new business does, like it's in retail probably. We did some TV. It jumped around. Oh yeah. We jumped around. We did different things. We did, you know, like kind of just some goofy stuff. Like we used to always have like, you know, now it's, 
they're whatever, but like Russian diamonds used to be big. So we do a Russian diamond show. And one year my wife and I dressed up as Russians with the hats on and the little baby and did fake snow coming down on TV. And sure. And yeah. it did it. So like, it just wasn't. And what percentage, what was the highest percentage in one, like uh, vertical advertising vertical, like radio versus TV, like the highest is probably what 15% that you put it in as opposed to all in one bucket. Yeah, like we would split it up and do whatever. So then, which is common, I think, for a lot of smaller companies to do. And I'm alluding to something that we're going to get to because I do marketing for a lot of people. And the spray and pray mentality typically doesn't work. And that was kind of sounds like what you guys were we doing were that. absolutely doing that. And so I said, well, um, and not that she's not tight too, but I'm tighter. And Tanya, <laughs> so Tanya, yes. So she said, well, I think we should go see this guy. I'm like, okay, well, call and see what it is. I had no clue. And shoot, this had to be 20 years ago, I suppose. And it was 10,000 for a day. 20 years ago. 20 years ago. I think it was 10,000 and you got to spend the whole day and you took your books or you present your books and you took all stuff from your ads, like your video VHS tapes of your TV ads, all this stuff. And, you know, so you go and then, um, a really a great guy learned a ton and when we left we ended up hiring him and we they we empl- we employed them for three years they helped us and in fact i moved locations in hayes we were looking for a new location and when there they sent a guy out for hiring and he helped us he looked at our stores like told us what needed change like our boxes were out of date we needed new boxes he helped me pick my location in hayes like i think you should move here like you know, smell the paint, look at the bulldozers. This is where everything's going. So you have the opportunity to move. This is where you should move. And we did. So I remember they only got, so it was the 10,000. Then we just hired him. And after that, it was just so much a month. If you agreed to stay and they moved us all to only radio, no TV, all radio, nothing else. And, uh, helped us with our ad buys. And then they wrote our ads for us and, and obviously after three years, we figured out the routine and I'm still 20 years later on the exact same rotations on the same radio stations. And I've never, even through COVID, I never went off. I mean, I might've gone off four weeks because we were closed, mm-hmm. um, but that was it. So since then I've never gone off, but yes, we went to one form of advertising and uh, it's just interesting and then we kept them for three years. And so their only raise would come if on the monthly fee was after each year, if they increased our sales, according to our sales tax numbers that we had to provide, they got a raise by whatever percentage they increased our sales from when we started. And do you remember approximately how much their increase of pay was? I remember exactly the first two years. The first year after we were done, they got a 50% raise. So Whoa. they increased our sales by 50%. It's amazing. We're turning your investment. And the second year, I think they got a 35% raise. Yeah. So they kept it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. then we increased again. Yeah. And part of it was moving a new location. Part of it, I mean, it, lots of things, yeah. but it didn't matter. So, I mean, that's, that's and, and by the way, I think we should say, is how many years were you think you, you were in business before you hired them? Well, 80 it would have been 91 so 10 years yeah so 10 years and then they did and then even after 10 years 
you got that increase in, in sales by hiring a marketing agency. And I don't even think of it as the marketing, you know, obviously they knew what they were talking about. And I, I love, I read all, you know, their Monday morning memo. Yes. It's wonderful. But, you know, not just to prop them up, but I think just a different philosophy and moving towards something and being all in in one spot and doing it in a specific way just reaps huge benefits and kind of relooking in the mirror of how you do your business well, like, you holistically. Know, his philosophy was even if the only radio station we can afford in your town with what your sales are is the Christian radio station, then you're going to have a lot of Christian radio customers. Because <laughs> you own it. Because you own it. Right. As opposed to barely touching a lot of different. So this is the thing with like, you know, people get on Facebook ads and like, oh, I got, you know, a million impressions, you know, this and that. I'm like, and then they shut it off or whatever. And it's like, no, we need to, I'd rather get a thousand and just hit them so hard that they know exactly who you are and your top of mind awareness is so strong. So that way, hey, jewelry, Eric, like, you know, and maybe that's a smaller subset of the people because you didn't hit them on, because they didn't listen to the radio, but you right. hit them hard. Yeah, it's, that's, that's a fun um, thing. If you, I mean, I think it's obvious, but if you would do it again, would you hire them all over again? Oh, absolutely. Like they're like, yeah, thank God somebody talked me into it. Thank <laughs> <laughs> yeah, God for the sister for that. I was like, that what? $10,000 for <laughs> yeah, a it's day? Insane. Yeah. So, um, what about any regrets along the way? Uh, no. And it could also be personal too, business personal. No oh, regrets. You know, I would say only regrets is maybe I wish I would have ended up in a bigger city. I mean, more population, bigger population, probably would have done more volume, more. Like, but you know. Grew up, Hayes is a wonderful community, lots of friends. Your kids know, you know, village yeah, oh, takes a village. And yeah, absolutely. What about if you go to yourself that you was like, okay, that, that uh, however old you were, 18, 19 years old, you walked in that store and you, you got hired. What advice would you give yourself at that age starting in the jewelry business? Um, well, it's so expensive to get into. So it would have been that if I was, working for someone who was aging out and my people weren't aging out at that time, but I mean, definitely would be a huge bonus to take over an existing store. I mean, you, you know, they say the average jewelry store survives on like 300 to 350 clients. Like that seems really small, but like, you know, as I, on my way here was thinking like, I'm like, okay, well I can name these people. They've been my customers for 25 years. Like, but if I probably went through my list and put check marks down, I mean, I would bet 350 of them are repeaters. They buy something every Christmas or they buy something this Christmas and then next birthday. Or so I would, you know, if, it'd be great to already take over something that already had 350 repeaters. Which I think is a wonderful thing, not just in retail or jewelry. You could do that with a marketing company. You could do that with kind of, you know, app, an app that's dying. You could buy that app so that way you already got the existing users in a base. It's much, it's, it's usually cheaper actually to buy something else that, and get into it, then start it from scratch and then make all the bumps and bruises along the way. Yeah. And you know, like I would think too, like, let's say you did get started and then let's say another jewelry store or another business in your town was going out of business, but you were already open. And I think a lot of people just are like, oh no, I need it to be mine. I don't want it to be someone else's. And I mean, I'd say get off that high horse. Like, yeah, it's a little bit pride like if you want it to be, there's some pride, but get over the pride and make it easier on yourself because your your chance for exponential growth comes much quicker. Because if they've had that store 40, 50 years, like it's kind of why I'm here. I've had my store 30 plus years. We definitely are trying to keep up with what's happening and what thing, what people are doing. 
So, but there's a lot of people in my industry who are 70 and 75 years old and have no one to take over their stores. Yeah. So a lot of opportunities, a lot of opportunities. So, but if that store or whatever it is, business in your town is, if there's another store that's been there forever and they're going out of business, I mean, no matter what the industry, you should be like, okay, well, what do I need to do to get your customer list? Like, can I, can I buy your customer list from you? Can we send them a nice letter that says, after 70 years, we know you're closing, but we have confidence in showcase jewelers of Hayes to do your repair work. Like, so can, can we somehow, no matter what industry it is, take, take something the from them, yeah. the referrals of their customers. Might like, as well not just let it all die, right? Well, and they get something out of it too. Yeah, like give you know, ten percent back. Yeah, well, yeah, whatever. or yeah. If you would start it all over again, would you start with somebody, or would you rather start it yourself? Well, I would say if I could have, I mean, if I would have had the capital, I would have started. But you didn't. So I, I didn't, guess. so I didn't. I mean, so that wasn't choice. There was no choice A because I didn't have the capital. So, and then B, you know, if with without my sister, I probably wouldn't have had another store to exponentially exponentially push growth to borrow more money to have more product to be where I was if that makes sense so so really how things turned out for me is probably how they needed to turn out um you know and my partner was very good he was much older than I was I like I said I worked for him he would have been my mentor I worked for him all through middle school high school understood money like nobody else I know and um you know when I got married or was going to get married, he, you know, said, it's, you know, it's basically time for me to bow out. Like I've got you where you need to be. You know, you've got your sister over here in this store, Tanya, you're going to have your wife, Jennifer here. We're going to become a partnership of four and that's going to get married very difficult. And so we bought him out. My sister and I did. And then, uh, then it's been great. Like it was all you know, plus I was 21 years old. So yeah, sure. I mean, to have someone help you understand that just because you had a $3,000 sale today doesn't mean that that's your $3,000 to go put down on a car right. so that you get the car you want. Right. Like, uh, right. Absolutely. <laughs> it kind of develops some uh, bumper lanes for you to, to, to run some business. Speed bumps. <laughs> well, and I think it's important because there's a lot, I think a lot of 21 year olds would love to start a business, but like, you know, they probably haven't started talking to somebody twice their age or three times their age. They would probably love to teach them and mentor them and get them off and partner with them even. Yes. And, you know, like so in our town, um, there's another guy. We'd love for him to start like a mentorship group like he. Yeah. So we're working on him to. I mean, you should. So we have a lot. We're lucky here in Austin, Texas. There's so many places you can go to get mentorship and help. But I, I still think even here, there's still probably more of a need of people starting, especially the young, younger you, you start, the better. Um, OK, so we talked about kind of, of your kind of future plans, this, that. Let's also talk about like other companies that you've been a part of. Like one thing that's interesting about a small town is you kind of get to meet everybody pretty quickly uh, in the business. Any other cool ventures that you've done over the years or anything that, any stories that you have or, or anything like that? Um, so kind of probably like with this becomes, um, you know, like a lot of people think, oh, I'm gonna go to a pawn shop or something with stuff like this. So um, there, there's a older friend of mine that um, there was a there was a liquor store across the parking lot from the jewelry store and he had a Chinese restaurant in the same thing. 
and we became very good friends. Like I'd go stay late and I was single. So we'd, he'd get done cooking. We'd have a drink. And then one day I went over and I said, well, that spot next to the liquor store opened up that I'd always thought would be a great spot for a pawn shop. And I'd love to put one in there. And he was, uh, he was cooking probably broccoli chicken at the time or something. And he just took his wallet out and said, well, here's my credit card, order whatever you need. And, <laughs> and that's how we started. Like I wouldn't have had the capital on my own once again. I mean, having just not so long ago bought out my partner in the jewelry business. And he's like, well, here you go. Here's the money. Just go start it. We started it. Uh, later on, uh, we, you and I started a e-stop. Yeah, eBay drop-off business. That shows our age, actually, that we we were, one <laughs> the, we were the second person in the nation to, to open an eBay drop-off business. It was fun to see it in the in a movie, I can't remember which one. Uh, it was forty-year-old uh, virgin. They had they had that in the movie like five years after us. Like we were here we that early. We thought that would be going to be a uh, multi-million-dollar business. That that and wasn't. But no, and it wasn't. So, but then that fun. kind of evolved, and then the pawn shop kind of bought that business out because it yep. fit. And that pawn shop still exists today. I don't yep. own any of it, but it still exists in Hayes today, and it's a great thing for the community. Like you know, sometimes people don't like those things, but. Actually, it's shown that crime goes down because people have a place to go get money. Like it's it's all relevant. It's cheaper than a uh, bouncing a check, a bouncing a check, yeah. or a payday loan, or yeah. any of those things. Yeah, I think you always kind of have to have the, all the different ancillary services. And you know, in a big yeah. city, you have a million of them, but you know, in a smaller town, you kind of need to have all that stuff. And I did residential and commercial real estate. I still have some of the commercial real estate. Residential real estate got to be you know. How, how do you start? The girls so like, on the- obviously, you met you know uh, a buddy there, and you but you had the idea. But like, just because he had the idea and even just because he gave you a credit card, how do you actually like start that company? Like a lot of people, and I think it might just be automatic in your brain, but a lot of people would love to do that. And they even probably have more money than you had at that time, way more, and even probably have influential friends, but they don't move that first step. Well, I think you can't be scared to ask, which most people are, and the next problem becomes is then you have to also, which would be nice to start on your own without anybody, because then you don't have to worry about other people's money. Because mm-hmm. dear Lord, I would hate to have lost his money. Like, which is motivational. So then it's motivational and you want things to work. It's more motivational than if it was yours. Then you just say, oh, well, it didn't work. Um, so it's, 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 it's not easy just to go out and start. I mean, A, you have to find the property. You got to decide where to go. Well, is that place better than that place? And do I pay $500 more rent there because it's on a better street? Or, I mean, it's, and I think for most, I think for most people that do business for themselves and are in business for themselves and are self-employed, like you said, it probably perfectly correct. It's, it's just a brain thing. It's, it it's, be, yeah. it's just like some people can do math and some people can't. And I, some of it's that, and some people should never be, some people have wonderful ideas and they can run with those ideas and do everything they should, but they should not be in business for themselves. So yeah, I do agree that I think it's just innate in some people, but let's say that, and they probably sometimes shouldn't even start a company because it is really hard, but what would be one of the first things you would recommend somebody to do if they want to start a company? And it could be a small, big, whatever. It doesn't matter. Just anywhere you take it where you actually would want to take it. Well, so now the most fascinating thing to me, I mean, obviously when I started the jewelry store, I'm not even sure we had the internet. Like, I'm just sure we didn't. Like, searchable like it is now on Google. Not 91, no. No. So 
So the thing is now is there's so much information and there's so much information put out by the Census Bureau, by the state of Kansas, state of Texas, like wherever. So, you know, I now know that a um, like that one jewelry store, like supposedly a town or city can support one jewelry store for every 55,000 to 5,500 people. I mean, I didn't know that when I started my store, but now it's like, okay, well, I'd like to open a store here. And I'm sure there's information for everyone else too other than jewelry, but it's like, now I want to open a store here. Okay, well, uh, it can support, a town can support one store for every 5,500 people. Well, we got 20,000 people. There's six stores here. Okay, in your head, it's almost an immediate, it should be, okay, this is almost an immediate chance of failure because four of those stores have been here 70 years and they have their loyal customers. They have each their 350 that are then supporting them and, and the extras. And so just the grasp of information in today's world, if you don't grasp it all and, and then get someone else to look at it with you, like, mm-hmm. don't, yes. don't be like, don't be like, Oh, I could overcome that. Well, maybe you should ask two or three people what they think if you could overcome that. Because if there's already six stores and there should only be four, there should already be two others gone. Mm-hmm. So you as the seventh, you're definitely going to not. Yeah, and do you want that battle? And that's a th- I think that could go into anything. There's supply demand of any area. So it doesn't even have to be so much of a demographic to a town so much as demographics. There's always so many people buying certain things. Like, you know, if you're, you're some kind of niche marketer or niche product or whatever it is, there's only so many. If there's 18 players in there. So my friend Kenny that helped open the pawn shop. So and him and his wife have probably seven or eight restaurants. They have Mexican, Chinese uh, Italian steakhouse, like they have a menagerie of everything. But he gave the perfect example. He said, I used to, at the Chinese restaurant, I used to see, um, these customers like every week they'd come and eat. And they like, then we got like a new restaurant and a new restaurant. And then pretty soon I saw them every two weeks. And then he said, then pretty soon I'd only see them every four weeks because we had more restaurants to choose from in Hayes. He's like, it's not that people don't want to eat. It's just that people only have so much disposable income to go out and eat. So if they're going to hit all these other restaurants, they only have so much money. So now I'm down to once every six weeks because they're spending my every week money at the other five. Yeah. So it's there's only so much that any given person has. Right, to give. So, okay, so do, do your homework to make sure that the supply demand makes sense. And retail, you should at least know what can can happen in there i think that's awesome any other items of advice because that's a that's a wonderful one well i think too like um and i I would use another friend that opened a computer store probably but we would like i think that sometimes people think they need way more capital than they really need so like people want to really go and buy like they want they want all of it now i mean you got to remember i took eight hundred dollars a month for three years okay so they want to go borrow all this capital because they just don't want to have to worry about it again. And then they want like... They want to be legit. They want to be legit. And Out of so... The gate. But legit's expensive. Yep. So, so when you, you know, and you have to pay it back or it's bankruptcy. Yeah. It's and that's to. worse. Like that would be worse. Like, mm-hmm. so you, the capital thing is a very tricky how much and how little, but it does have to be paid back. And typically on a business, it's probably in seven years or or less depending on what you're borrowing the money on. 
And then, you know, I think it's harder now to get an SBA loan than it used to be. But the capital thing is probably the hardest part. Like, well, I don't, I don't want to not have enough capital. Well, if you give yourself too much capital, then are you spending it on things you don't? I mean, did you put six computers into inventory instead of two? And you really only needed two because you could reorder them and have them in and two days cha- express. And it changes all the and time. And it's here. And it changes all the time. And then... What about any rules that you do not you ne- that you do not do like rules against like I don't do this in business? I don't know if I have any of those. <laughs> I what, mean, what about like putting your home your house up against the company? Like, um, would you do that? Well, so I'm extremely lucky because most people in my industry have their homes up against their business because obviously these don't have inventory numbers and I could sell this to you while I'm in Austin today and that's gone. There's no title. There's no, I mean, this seven carat diamond ring at $70,000, $100,000, however much it might be today, like there's no title on that. Like if I sold you that, but I owed money at the bank on it, it's not like the bank can go find it where right. it went. Right. So most people in my industry actually have their house up. And for me, well, A, I don't owe any money on the place anymore, but B is is I was very lucky that the lady believed in me and I've never had to put my house up against basically my notes for my entire 30 years has been my word. Hmm, wow. And, and do you think somebody could do that today? No. Yeah. Different time. Yeah. But also, you know, I, you know, there's also other benefits because I think right now it's the easiest time to start a business, but the hardest time to start a real company. Meaning you can get started in something for a hundred dollars. You can, you know, I can, you can do a Shopify store, e-commerce store and have a company going, right. but it's not really real. Yeah. And, and I think it's much, but you know, which is what, if you know the right tools, you could get started without the capital. It just, which in a, in, it on a, like, in a weird way, it allows people to be someone they're not. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Any uh, other fun stories or whether it's buying, whether it's jewelry or business or, or, or life in Hayes, Kansas or anything like that? Oh, if you live in Hayes, it's full of fun every day. <laughs> it's a pretty slow moving place. <laughs> There's, I mean, gosh, the stories are. What's, what's the coolest, what's the most fun thing you've ever sold? Or craziest? Or I don't know if we can unique. talk about that. <laughs> Oh, yeah, actually, I do know. <laughs> that's it. No, we can't talk about that. No, we can't talk oh, about that's that. Funny. Oh, that's funny. That's right. That's probably a too far already. No, awesome. Actually, so uh, we'll, we'll end it kind of on a serious note. This is my last question. I end every podcast this way is, how would you like to be remembered? Um, I would like to be remembered for, like, all... It would be all the people that I've seen like get engaged and married. And then the weirdest thing now is because I don't want to be old, but now I'm selling their kids engagement rings. And to for what I do, I'm a huge part of people's lives. And it might only be an hour on the front side and an hour for this or that. But like, you know, really for what we do every day, like we've kind of talked a lot about this today in... Um, like hard asset type stuff, but like what we do so sentimental. Like I know that this bracelet means more than the diamonds and the gold. And like what we do is the sentimental part and it's, it's the memory. I have one lady 
I mean, she had rings this size on like every finger. Mm-hmm. And some mm-hmm. she had two on when she passed away. And she could she could take this ring off and she could tell you I got this for Valentine's 1986. I got this for my anniversary in 2001. I got but and I bet you she had 20 rings and she could tell me every occasion that her husband had given her those pieces for. And so I know what we do is 100% like sentimental memory building. Some people's great grandkids are going to get some pieces that I did. And so literally for some people, I'll be a part of their lives for generations. And, and that's pretty cool. That is really cool. And that's, uh, I remember that. I remember that emotional tie you would have with people because you're buying it, you know, sometimes in really exciting points and sometimes not, um, that, you know, that you're a part of the I mean, before I came, this lady came in and her husband had just passed away and we had always done the repair work on her ring and she wanted to take it off and she wanted to have it cleaned and fixed and put in a box for her kids. And then she wanted to buy another ring to wear like on her right hand. She's like, after the funeral, I'm putting it away but I wanted a different ring to wear. And then she started crying and I don't, there's, there's two things I don't do well with in life. One is receiving compliments. I never know how to respond to a compliment. And part two is women crying. <laughs> I don't know what to do. And you have three daughters. Yes. Our, our, our two daughters, sorry. Two daughters, yeah, two daughters and a wife. And a wife, yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, three women and a wife. But I don't ever know what to do in those two situations. I can do a lot of stuff, but don't cry in front of me as a girl and don't give me a compliment. <laughs> well, Eric, you're one of the most interesting people in the world. Uh, my mentor, and I absolutely appreciate you coming all the way to Austin to film this, to be in person. Uh, thanks, David Lackey. He's the one moving behind the scenes, <laughs> making sure that we look uh, beautiful as we can here at Two Schmucks up here. But uh, I really appreciate you being on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right. Cheers.